Welcome back to Reply Guys, the leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. I am Kate Willett. And I'm Julia Clare. And we are going to talk about uh, the most important safety issue of the decade, millennium. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think um, in terms of public safety, it's bigger than... Uh, Ted Bundy it's bigger than the you know the the Golden State Killer it's bigger than Watergate even maybe and of course we are talking about the notorious the terrifying West Elm Caleb West Elm Caleb welcome to the show <laughs> so okay if you're not online um bless why, you why bless you to the show um, yeah if but... you're not online well i do know that some of i have some friends from home who are not chronically online who listen to the show um oh and gosh. so for for those of you those few of you who are, are here we'll give you a brief rundown and we'll also link in the show notes um i think that there was buzzfeed did a good explainer piece about it uh, as they want to do uh but basically you know what kate i'll let you take it away since you wanted to talk about this but I, i'll jump in so um west elm caleb is he was a i think 25 year old man named caleb west elm is not his legal name actually um but i think he worked at the west elm and the west elm west elm i don't know but uh I think what happens is um, like a bunch of women in their early to mid twenties on TikTok realized that they had all like dated this same guy and had been ghosted by him. And in, in some instances, and I think in, in all instances, some instances, I don't know, there was ghosting. Um, he, you know, apparently was not forthcoming with, with some of the women about, you know, that he was also dating multiple people. Um, and, you know, people are, uh, accusing him of, uh, love bombing, <laughs> gaslighting, um, girl bot, gays, <laughs> girl boss, gatekeep, gaslight. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I think it, it, there's so much here, but I mean, if any of this sounds vaguely familiar, it's because you have just dated as a young person in an urban area. I do want to say to me, like the, the thing in his behavior that sort of stands out is he apparently was sending unsolicited dick pics, which is a big no, you know, that's not, it's a big, it's a big no. Cool. Yeah. I, I was actually having uh, this debate with, um, with one of my friends who's a former guest actually today. And she was like sending an unsolicited dick pic is harassment. And I said, I don't, I think the context matters. Sending an unsolicited dick pic to your coworker is harassment. Sending an unsolicited dick pic to someone that you're like flirting with on a dating site is like bad behavior. 
that's it's inappropriate and it's bad behavior, but it's not harassment. I think a case could be made either way, but you know, in, in any case, the unsolicited dick pic um, seems you know a, a notable difference of scale uh, from something he, like ghosting or just dating multiple people at the same time. Um, he recycled, also recycled the same Spotify playlist uh, and sent the girls, all these different girls, the same Spotify playlist that he said he made just for them. <laughs> Which like, oh, it's, but anyways, and all of this obviously sounds pretty, I mean, like rude, but benign ultimately, but th- He's a fuckboy. He's, He's a fuckboy. We've all met one. We all have had. I've never met a fuckboy. No, no. I'm just kidding. I have. Someone called me online today. Uh, the Clary Starling of fuckboys. Yes. Uh, oh, that was com- another former guest. Yeah, I was uh, both complimented and it was also like a real look in the mirror moment for myself. <laughs> Do I really want to be the Clary Starling of fuckboys? I think I yes. Know. I think so. I mean, to me, I, I never dated this kind of fuckboy. When I was like, um, you know, when I was hearing this story about West Elm, I was like, how do you end up fucking a guy that's into like, you know, modern furniture and home design? Call me back when you're canceling Ketamine Kevin. Yeah. <laughs> uh, baggage Brian. I, don't I know. literally have had guys like show up to dates drunk i like i can't i don't know but basically so all this is to say like this is clearly just like you know you're running the mill shitty guy fuck boy whatever but he what happened is that all of the it became this like tiktok phenomenon and i'm not on tiktok so i didn't you know i didn't see this until this morning but it was like uh, all of these girls kind of giving their like testimonials and then people doxed this guy like his because they revealed like there were some some of the girls like revealed personal information about him people just sort of like ran with it and yeah it's like i mean he was he was harassed i think in line to get a COVID test or I don't know if he was harassed but people doxed his look like doxed his location when he was in line to get a COVID test I mean look if West Elm Caleb is really dating this many people don't we want him to have a COVID test I mean this man (laughs) if nothing else sounds like a super spreader you know he is a super spreader and we want him to be you know just for the sake of the community we want him to be uh disease free yeah in every sense of the word but i don't know okay so this is this is my thing about it and to the credit of some of the girls uh some of them Should we say women this is it's girlish behavior that's going it's on. girl it's girl shit yeah they were like they're i don't know early 20s people to me are girls you were in your early 20s like five minutes ago but okay i am 31 i am an adult woman <laughs> I am not saying my age and I'm an adult woman sometimes. <laughs> no, it is girl shit. Sorry. So some of these women were you know, later posted more TikToks being like don't harass him, like don't dox him, but the genie was already out of the bottle. Uh so basically, yeah. I okay. Here's my thing about this. I don't even really care about Caleb per se 
I, I care about him. We went on one date. He ghosted me. <laughs> and I've been pining for West Elm Caleb for the rest of I my mean, life. I mean, who among us has not? But um, it's like, <laughs> I just don't like what this reflects back about our culture and what this like says about us as a as a culture and what particularly what it says about where the culture is going um and that is mostly the kind the take that i saw about it on my feed and but i know that i have like a pretty curated feed uh and a lot of the people who you know uh whose content i read it's very it's it's in the realm of of opinions that i share um but yeah i i think that for like (sighs) this culture where everyone wants to be an influencer and everyone thinks that every small feeling of discomfort should be publicized and commodified is really it's really dangerous i think yeah i also like the you know this like this way that like clinical language for mental health stuff has kind of made its way into the parlance you know like yeah there's somebody doesn't like not every jerk has narcissistic personality disorder. Not every asshole is gaslighting you. Sometimes people just lie. Sometimes people are sometimes just people are liars. Yeah. Sometimes people are selfish. Me. Yeah. I mean, to me, I I honestly found like this whole thing about you know kind of framing West Elm Caleb as emotionally abusive. It's very insulting to people who I think have been in emotionally abusive relationships. I completely agree. So the again the BuzzFeed piece, I uh, will link in the show notes by Katie Natopoulos, and she ends his like list of offenses, uh, you know alleged offenses by saying, "I'm sorry, but like we're all grownups here, right?" <laughs> If you're shocked by the idea of a young single person in New York City having sex with more than one person, they're casually dating. There's a whole TV show from the 2000s I'd love for you to check out. It's really great outfits. (laughs) And it's so true. It's just like, I don't know, when I see... And granted, like, uh, you know, I was 23 not too long ago i understand how kind of like sad and you know betrayed you can feel when someone manipulates you it sucks i'm not saying it doesn't suck it does it's just like this is part of life babe i don't know i like it's not he's not doing trauma to you because he like ghosting is not someone traumatizing you yeah, I, I, I've been on a lot of online dates. I, you know, I, I would say I'm a, an extremely experienced online dater. And I think I'm pretty good at online dating. Um, it's, you know, the relationship part, that's where it gets dicier. <laughs> once we're six months, a year in. That's sure. the part I really struggle with. But in terms of like meeting, finding people online and managing it, and I, I think a way that's like pretty emotionally healthy I, I feel like I've gotten good at that from an unfortunate amount of experience and mm-hmm. I, I do think that one thing that's important to remember is that the people that you're meeting online 
are strangers. I mean, you yes. do not know them. I don't think, I think that it's really helpful if you are online dating to just keep kind of reminding yourself that the person is a stranger, you know, yeah. until you, you actually like know them, which yeah. knowing another person is a, a process that I think takes a couple months minimum. And then, you know, deciding your the own, you know, the, the level of emotional investment that you want to make based on that. Like, you know, if it's, if you're somebody that has fun, you know, kind of falling hard and fast for someone that you don't necessarily know, that's completely fine, but mm -hmm. it is like, it's emotional risk-taking. And I think that the grown-up way to be about it is to realize, yeah, you know, kind of live by the sword, die by the sword. If you yeah. are, you know, super emotionally invested in somebody that you don't know, it, it could turn out that they have qualities that, you know, you didn't anticipate. They could be a liar. They could be a selfish person or something. And, you know, I think, you know, or just ghosts, like people just ghost all the time. We're not saying it's good. I don't, I honestly, side note, if we're less than three dates in, just ghost me. Like, I don't want to break up text from you, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. No, I'll get, totally. I'll get the point, you know? Totally. <laughs> yeah. Totally. And like, I'm yeah part of adulthood unfortunately part of like being an adult in interpersonal adult interpersonal relationships is getting your feelings hurt like it sucks again but it's not abuse <laughs> yeah there's this weird kind of like lady incel movement that feels like it's kind of starting to happen I don't know if I, I want to call it a movement but, man, lady this, incel well no for real okay so there's this um there's this subreddit incels for her no, it's called female dating strategy. And oh, it's God. no, and it is, it is like, it's very incel like of, you know, this kind of, um, first of all, there's many reasons that th this is bad. It's like a huge community that is like getting really big. And um, there, you know, there's people posting anti trans shit. There's people posting, you know, horror phobic sex worker phobic shit and it's pretty it's pretty fucked up but you know there's this like um idea that i think is like emerging that there's sort of like this sense of um like entitlement like almost in the way that we would criticize like you know dude incels for mm -hmm. of you know kind of like i don't know just this this sort of rage that feels a bit misplaced. Um, right. And I don't want to, I mean, like dude incels have killed people and murdered people. And, mm -hmm. you know, women have, have not done that. Like for the most part, it's, you know, just saying stuff that feels far out of hand. Um, Listening to a lot of Alanis Morissette, Jagged Little Pill. Yeah. But I mean, you know, that meme of like, you know, so-and-so doesn't owe you anything. Okay, your politicians, your elected leaders, they do owe you something. Yeah. A random person that you've been on a date or two with does not. I'm sorry. I wonder if this has something to do with, like, the cultural shift. I don't know. I would have to ask people maybe in, like, our parents' generation about this or maybe just one or two generations above us um, before online dating and before, you know, you could really look people up. I think there, you know, if you like met somebody at a bar, there was a, you know, you know, this is a stranger. Like, is, I don't know, is 
online dating giving us some sort of like false familiarity or is it or do people just not understand that these are like essentially strangers and you don't actually know anything about them i'm not sure i mean i feel like ghosting has always been a phenomenon and it has it has but i but i do think i think it's like the mindset with which we approach things like ghosting and dating I, i agree there is something different about it but i'm not really sure i mean i do think you know with online dating there is like um you know, I think that like when, you know, my parents were dating, for example, there was, there was no, uh, no apps, of course, although I'm almost that young that my parents get a minute. Um, <laughs> my skin is beautiful, but, um, she's glowing. Yeah. I think that there is, you know, to, it does feel, I think, riskier in some ways to like be dating someone that you have like no, you know, no reference checks on, like there's, mm-hmm. you know, you can't like ask around, you know, like, Hey, you know, you're mutual friends with this person. What do you think about them? You know, what did you notice about uh, how they treated their last partner or whatever, you know, like there is like a, a sense of security, I think, in, in being able to, you know, be dating somebody that you're in the same at least loose community with versus like a straight up complete stranger that is disconcerting i think my parents met at a bar was your dad wearing his badge and all that shit? <laughs> no uh, <laughs> no he was not he was not even he was not a cop yet uh but um he was a complete like they were complete strangers and the story goes that at the end of their first date, my mom was like, well, you seem nice, so I guess I won't be needing this. And pulled a an ice pick out from her sleeve. Oh, my God. Queen. Good, good that your dad wasn't a cop yet. He could have uh, arrested <laughs> her for having a concealed weapon. Concealed weapon. But, I mean, this is what I'm talking about. It's like you just under, like, back then you just, like, understood this is a stranger. And, like, even though they seem nice, I ultimately don't know them. And yeah. and I think that the same logic should be applied to online. To someone I mean, that you've been in a relationship with for yes, a year. You wake yes. up next to them and you think, this is a stranger. I don't know this you. This is a stranger. <laughs> I say that to my boyfriend every day. I yeah. say, who are you? Yeah. You're a stranger. Um, but... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, clearly this is not, I'm like painting with a broad brush. There are a lot of us who definitely like are, uh, especially women, are like on very on guard, even with online dating, because like you could be talking to someone for a while and still, I don't know, I've, I've done, because I've also done a lot of online dating, like, you know, talking to someone for a while and you still are like, ultimately this is a stranger like my friends and I would um like sometimes will like would send each other like all the the person's information that we know just in case like before our first date just in case they're weird (laughs) or they kill us or something I don't know but I mean the thing is and this is like something that you know honestly uh, it has taken me sort of a while to learn in this life is that it's like months before you know someone really, you know, like even if you're in a relationship, 
people are on their best fucking behavior yes. for the first three to six months. And that's so true. I am, um, at least I personally, I'm never gonna, I think, I don't know. I'm, I, 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 I'm going to approach, I think my future relationships with a cautious optimism mm-hmm. until I have not only got to know that person for a few months, but like seeing, you know, how they, how they react to stress, how, how they're dealing with the ups and downs of life. Cause people's like real personalities and their trauma and all that stuff. It doesn't, it doesn't come out until you're kind of like past that honeymoon phase. Yeah. And it feels really good to be in that honeymoon phase. I mean, it feels even really amazing. I think to have, you know, a great third date with someone and to feel that promise of love or, you know, sex connection, but you don't, there's going to be surprises in store. Like how mm-hmm. bad the surprises are can vary, you know? It can either be, like, it can be like a surprise level, like, wow, that person's mom is really pushy <laughs> or their dad is really, you know, like a QAnon guy or whatever. Like there can be like low level surprises or it can also be like, wow, this person truly has no capacity to communicate when something is, bothering them or they're a cheater or you know whatever but you just you don't know you know and I think that it's like ah, man it's tough because I don't I hate when like I hate when the like uh the like anti-cancel culture like everything is virtue signaling crowd like has any kind of point about mm-hmm. anything but I do think that the way that we have like as a culture sort of completely deflected like our own responsibility for like having good boundaries it's it's starting to get into territory that's like a little bit ridiculous with this one like yeah I when I was talking to my friend about this she was saying that this conversation this discourse reminds her of like the Aziz stuff and I think it I thought it immediately reminded me of the cat person discourse um, where it's like, yeah, sometimes you have like a bad sexual experience that's not abuse or rape or, but it's just like, it's bad and you can just call it that. Yeah. You don't have to like escalate the terminology you use for it to garner, I don't know, to, I don't want to say to garner more sympathy, but to garner more attention, I guess. And that sounds so gross. That sounds very like anti-cancel culture of me, but, um, yeah, it's, it's true. A, it's a tough line to reckon with. I mean, I know for myself, one thing that I've been thinking about, you know, in recent times is like, you know, we are sold this idea on like sort of one half of our culture, you know, Christianity, like purity culture, where like sex is a huge deal and you can only do it with one person in your life and you have to keep yourself super pure and, and that's mm-hmm. really fucked up. But then on the other hand, you know, we're also kind of sold this idea that sex shouldn't be a big deal whatsoever and that it doesn't need to mean anything. And it, you know, it doesn't need to mean anything. It's I've had times in my life where sex was like a handshake to me. And I've had times in my life where I was in a really like sensitive place and I needed to feel like a lot of care and trust and connection and like however big of a deal sex is to you. It's totally fine. But I think that like one thing that can really help 
in dating is to like kind of know how big of a deal sex is to you or not, you know, with a particular person in a particular moment in a particular phase of life. And then like make your own decisions and take your own risks like accordingly, you know, like for myself, like I don't, I would not sleep with someone that I was on a first date with at this point. And it's not because I think it's like wrong or it would make me a slut. I just don't, like, I don't like being ghosted by someone that I've had sex with. Like, it feels bad to me. So I, I don't want to do that, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't think it's victim blaming to say that it's like cool to make decisions based on what is going to do the best job of, you know, taking care of yourself emotionally. Yeah. Making decisions based on the available information that you know about yourself is yeah. like a huge one. There's also jerks. And- totally. Like, it's, I don't know. Jerks of, I mean, there are, uh, and jerk is genderless, by the way. I've dated, yeah. you know, Kate and I have both dated women as well. Cool. Another great genderless insult. You're right. I mean, I guess, I don't know. And people do use asshole for men, but I think ass, I, I think asshole can be anyone, you know? I don't know. Um, I do want to say that we, do, you know, we have spent a long time on a, WEC West Elm Caleb but guys if if, like honestly I would I I really want to know what our listeners think about this so hit us up send send me an email my email is is linked on my website just or you know I don't know just I really want to hear from you guys about this um I, you know who I want to hear from, which is this this week's guest, and her name is the uh, the fantastic Hadass Thier, and she wrote a book called The People's Guide to Capitalism. And what the, this book is so cool because it's a very, very, very accessible introduction to Marxist theory mm-hmm. in a way that like you could sit down and easily read in in one evening, which for me is so cool because, you know, I've been trying to make it through capital and like, it's like, it's, it's great. It's, you know, it's, it's good to read the greats, um, you know, but. Right. But we're we're also, we're also never going to um, create like a revolution by requiring people to read theory. Yeah. And, but like, you know, in its original form. Yeah, this book is is really really accessible, and you know she also really goes into like the way that uh, capitalism is is playing out in the COVID crisis, and I, I just really love this book, so wanted to have her on the show, and we had a really good conversation about you know kind of the the basics of how capitalism got started, and like how people can I think you know think think about other other possibilities um besides just what we're doing now which is making space billionaires rich well everyone else suffers a lot and you know the role of like the labor movement in creating mm-hmm. a better society in in conjunction maybe with electoral politics but for Mm -hmm. those who are feeling very disenchanted with the possibility for change solely by you know voting democrats i I think that this interview will will feel inspiring because you know i think it, it is it is becoming very clear that 
workers do have the power to like shut this shit right down, you mm-hmm. know? Well, that sounds amazing. And I would, it t- sounds like a book I would totally read. I would love I will send it to you. an accessible primer to Marxist theory. Yeah, it's good. I'm, I'm going to send it to you. Um, all right, please enjoy this interview with Hadash. She's so, so cool. Bye. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. I am so excited to be joined right now by someone whose book I really, really liked. Please welcome to the show Hadas Tier. Hello, Hadas. Hello. Thank you so much for bringing me on. So you wrote this book called A People's Guide to Capitalism that is a really accessible introduction to Marxist economics, which I thought was so cool because not everyone is going to be able to sit down and read Capital. And even if you are sitting down to read Capital, as, as I've been trying to do, you know, some, sometimes the... Um, the like old, the, the super 1800s language can be a little hard to parse. Although there are some, uh, there are some jokes in there, which I thought was yes. funny. You know, <laughs> he threw in like a couple sex jokes and uh, Shakespeare jokes. I liked that. But um, I, yeah, I thought this book was so neat because it, it's like, a, it can, I think for people who feel a little bit intimidated by reading theory it can give like a a pretty sort of you know easy to understand introduction to a, a lot of the concepts that um socialists talk about this is it's really cool awesome yeah i i had the same experience where when i first tried to read capital i found it very difficult very dense and i had to try several times so that's part of where this book came from is to try to make it easier for other people Um, I, you know, I love capital and I have like little smiley marks in the margins where he makes jokes. Um, and it is, I, I've heard like getting, um, an updated translation where they're trying to make it, you know, a little bit less old timey, but, but it's a dense book. Um, just going to cut out the part of this interview where you said, I love capital and just keep playing that <laughs> out of context and just drop it under every, uh, every Jeff Bezos tweet, just awesome. you expressing your support. <laughs> there she goes again, loving capital. <laughs> yeah, it's really, she's, she's on, she's uh, really into that. Um, okay. So let's talk about some of the things that you discussed in the book. So where did capitalism come from? How did people get this idea to do capitalism? <laughs> it was a very, very bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, part of what I tried to lay out in the book, so the book is like mostly not a historical book, but I introduce a little bit of history in the beginning just to kind of put it in context. And what I try to do is both give a sense of like, you know, capitalism isn't just like, in our DNA. It's not like it's this everlasting system and humans just love to truck and barter and organize ourselves into hierarchies because that's just how we were built. Um, And that the vast majority of society, human beings did not live under capitalism or even under like, you know, class societies. So um, it really developed over the course of many, uh, you know, first of all, class societies developed over the course of, of, of many millennia and there was, you know, some reasons for it. There were some good reasons for it, right? That like, as societies became more settled, they needed more 
you know, organization. They needed people to hold on to and organize surpluses and stuff like that. And over the course of a very long time, it was like not something that just happened or like just an idea. And then everybody kind of got in line. Uh, but over the course of many millennia, and there was tons of revolts and, you know, it didn't, it didn't come easy. Um, and then capitalism is a very specific form of class society that really comes, you know, at the very, like, towards the end of um, human history. Um, at, at, uh, we're, we're, as far as we've gotten so far anyway. Um, and, you know, it, it was basically came out, of, it start, began in these pockets in England, you know, through the enclosure movements and through, you know, basically um, uh, evicting masses of people from their land so that, um, you know, smaller groups of people could hoard greater amounts of land. Um, and so masses of people who are, were displaced had no option but to work for somebody else, you know, that they couldn't sustain themselves off of their own tools and lands, but had to like get a job uh, in order to not starve. I think this was, you know, certainly when I learned about this in junior high, high school, it was very much represented as like capitalism was, you know, the, it went one in one with, um, the birth of, you know, democracy, basically, that like, you know, before capitalism, we had feudalism, and then, you know, the, the, the lords were in control of everything. And then the first time people had a voice of any kind in their own destiny um, was because of capitalism. And that if people are to have a voice in, in anything, um, that we have to have capitalism because that's the, the only way that anything can be democratic. What, what do you think is wrong with that idea? <laughs> right. Well, first of all, it ignores the vast majority of human history because feudalism was really bad. I wouldn't yeah. want to go back to it. Um, no, but... not really me neither. Yeah. <laughs> and we are kind of going back to it in a way. <laughs> right, totally. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, the vast majority of human history, people lived in hunter-gatherer societies, which varied, you know, in terms of the kind of way that they were organized. But by and large, they were like far more egalitarian and, um, you know, there weren't sur surpluses to be hoarded. So they had their own problems, right? They had scarcity and climate, you know, and all the rest of it. But, um, but a lack of democracy wasn't really their problem. Um, yeah. So, so that's one thing to say. And then the other thing is like, you know, there is a pretense of democracy that came along with capitalism and there's an aspect of it that's progressive relative to feudalism, right? Um, it used to be that you just, you were a serf, you were born a serf. And if the Lord like came to your house and demanded more or else, you know, you get bonked in the head or whatever it is, it's like, it's just, you're indebted and there's no, there's no pretense about it. Um, and capitalism has the, the pretense of, well, you know, you, you're free to do what you want and you're free to get a job wherever you want and et cetera. But of course, you're, you're, the way Marx talked about it is that you're free in a double sense. You're free to uh, labor for anybody, you know, where you can get a job, but you're also free of any material possessions, you know, 
Um, we might have whatever, we all have our things, our knickknacks and so on, but we don't have enough things to sustain ourselves. We don't have the land and the tools and the factories and the soft, whatever it is, all the things. Um, so there's a pretense of democracy, but you have to work or you starve. Um, and like, you know, all of that. So that's economic coercion as opposed to, you know, under feudalism, which was mostly violence, but then it is also backed up by violence, right? It's like, if you don't follow the rules, if you go to work and then you decide to take home what you've made instead of, you know, go home with a meager paycheck, then you get thrown in jail. You know, there's always the threat of violence to like back up that economic coercion or yeah. kick you out of your house if you don't pay the rent or et cetera. That's what I've, I've been threatening to do this to my cats all week. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, so I'm, I've, been, I've been laboring. They've just been chilling, sleeping. I'm so angry with them. <laughs> um, so, all right. Uh, I, I'm, uh, I am on board with, with all of this. So yeah, but for those of us who are like not too keen on going back to the land, but are, you know, thinking, well, it might be nice to um, have our material needs met in a way that doesn't feel so eternally precarious. What are the potential alternatives? Yeah, that's a very good question. And that's the question I always try to avoid. So like- Oh, sorry. No, no, it's okay. No, I, 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 but it's a good question. It's the I right question. Like, is there anything you don't want me to ask you? Um, right, I forgot What should we that do? That would, be the, that would be the one, yeah. Yeah, no, that's the, it is the important question. But I, you know, I, I sort of, I wrote this book where I'm just the bearer of bad news. Like, this is like the shitty system that we live in. And I don't offer like- you know, here's how we get out of it, which is a much more complicated question. Um, but I think I think I would say a couple of things. One is that um, it's certainly possible, right? Like materially, it's possible. Like we already have the productive capacity in this world to to do that. You know, we have enough food gets produced to feed the entire world over. There's absolutely no reason why you know. Um, people should be dying of hunger. Uh, basically, you know, all of that stuff. We know, you know, there's, there's the science is there to help to, to try to reel back climate disaster. I mean, all of these things materially exist. And the problem is, is that we have a political order that is very much entrenched, you know, it's like the, that whole thing about it being a pretense of democracy, right? Like we vote for like this bad guy or that bad guy, uh, most, in hey, most cases. Sometimes we get to vote for a bad woman and that's that true. is empowering. And, and that's yeah. very empowering. Yes. Well, I feel a lot better. Just one I... more sexist on the show. Uh, <laughs> doing sexism and socialism. Wow. I know that's how it goes. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, so, right. So we have like politicians who get elected with major campaign contributions, as you know, and um, they represent them, not us. And, you know, the, the, the industries, the oil industry, like the pharmaceutical industry, all these industries are so entrenched um, that the problem is a political problem. Right. And so the question that, that that is the complicated question, like the, this is more simple question is like, it's possible. And the more complicated question is like, how do we organize ourselves? And the left has really been, you know, in bad shape for a long time. And 
internationally, but in this country in particular, right? Like we're, we've just been in, in um, hobbled for a few decades and it's finally kind of coming back alive over the last few years. And, you know, the Bernie campaigns I think helped a lot, um, but, but we're just in the very beginning stages where it's like, it's a little hard to see like how we're gonna get from here to there. Um, but I think that like we do have, and part of what I do emphasize in the book, right, is we do have as the vast majority of people in society and as like working people in a society, we do have like this vast economic power, right? The system depends on profit. It can't function without profit and we make the profit for them. And so like materially, that's kind of where our power comes from. And so the question is, and the labor movement has been, you know, in the shitter for a long time, but you're beginning to see like, you know, the, the strike wave that happened um, this past fall and like teacher strike wave that happened a couple of years back, like you can begin to see like the building blocks for, um, you know, how we organize our side um, and ultimately like both get better material conditions in the here and now, but also like lay the basis for uh, organizing a different kind of alternative. Yeah, I, I this idea, uh, we make the profit for them, obviously. One of the most important ideas in capitalism um, what do you think? Okay, so talk about how that is sort of playing out and becoming more laid bare than ever in in this coronavirus crisis. About how it is that they that we make the profit and yeah, like that. just yeah. basically workers kind of. I think so many workers all around the United States are waking up to like, oh, actually, uh, profit is is coming from my labor and you know I'm over here making minimum wage while this Bezos dude is becoming the richest man on, on planet earth who's trying Flying to become to, the richest guy on planet Mars what right totally taking yeah. joy rides into outer space just because he can yeah <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely I mean I think right the, the there's a couple things being laid bare at the same time there first is like right we're the ones that that make everything and that all this talk especially at the beginning of the pandemic now you know, mainstream media is kind of talking less and less about this, but the whole concept of essential workers is an admission that like what makes things work is grocery workers, not Jeff Bezos. So part of it is like, we, we make everything run and we make all the profits, but we don't get any of them. I think that's become very, very obvious. Um, and the other thing that's become very obvious is that they don't give a shit about our lives, you know, that like, for all the talk in the first couple months of the pandemic of like essential workers and like clapping for essential workers and so on and so forth it was just like a way to keep people like going to work in really unsafe conditions um, for a few claps or whatever, but not get any hazard pay for it. Um, but then, you know, all of the decisions that were made and it was not just by the Trump administration. Now we're seeing a lot of the very same decisions being made by the Biden administration is based on the idea that, you know, they just don't, they don't care about our lives and the system isn't set up to care about our lives. Like markets don't have that as part of their metrics is like human life or health or planetary sustainability. It only, you know, measures profit. So 
Um, I think that's the other thing that's become very obvious. Um, you know, it's like now the whole, the political elite, and this is not different from Trump, you know, Trump invested in vaccines, you know, operation warp speed and so on. That was like the only response to the pandemic. And then the Biden administration is all about the vaccines, which like I'm pro vaccine. That's great. I think that's, yeah. but it's like the only thing it's like, yeah, okay, it's not the only potential tool available. Yeah. And it's actually disastrous to, to to pretend that it is, you know, and it's like, get vaccinated, stop complaining and go back to work. Yeah. No, we could be, for example, uh, you know, adding a bunch of ventilation to schools, you know, but it's like, no, it really is just like one track minds. I mean, we could, we could, you know, theoretically set up a society where, everybody is able to test multiple times per week. And that would not, you know, I mean, that wouldn't eradicate COVID, but it would certainly stop, you know, the spread to a substantial degree. If like, you know, just testing, testing was something that you did like flossing, you just test, you know, and then you get to stay home. If you have COVID and you get paid for that time, maybe someone, delivers food to you, you know, um, these things are not, I don't know. It's, it's, it's really frustrating because I do think that like, you know, the media is kind of putting it out there that it's this binary of like, you know, either, uh, take your vaccine and learn to live with the virus, which means Mm -hmm. doing nothing or yeah, I guess you can be one of those psychos that never wants to go outside ever again, you know, and never have a social interaction in your life. And it's like, no, those are not the only two options, my friend. It's just that the, the other options cost some money, you know? Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's, that's totally right. I mean, it's the same thing with the school closure stuff, you know, it's like, you know, a lot of students walked out of their schools last week, I thought for good reason, because like they're in the middle of a COVID surge and even people who are, you know, immuno, students who are immunocompromised or are living with people who are immunocompromised, they don't even have the option. And it's like stressful if you're in high school and like you're, you might fail your classes and so on. Uh, it's really, really messed up. And it's like, yeah, if they, if they just gave out, everybody got a test every morning before school, then that would really solve a really big part of the problem. But instead, and this is again, like what is being laid bare by capitalism uh, by the pandemic about capitalism is like, you know, there was a story that came out over the summer about how Abbott technologies or whatever um, threw out millions of these antigen tests, the Binax tests. They just oh literally God. threw out millions of tests because at the time there was like low demand for them. Like the virus um, was on a, on a downslope and the CDC had just said, you know, you don't need to wear masks indoors, whatever, all these things were coming out. And so people weren't testing. And so they threw them out because for capitalism, it makes more sense to throw out things than to sell them on the cheap because then you flood the market and then you've, you know, set a precedent for tests only costing a dollar or whatever it is. Yeah. No, it only costs like a dollar or two to produce. Um, so, you know, it's just so, and then now we're like, 
can't find any tests anywhere and there's like price gouging and it's just insane. And, you know, this kind of thing could have been totally avoided, not only just not throwing out millions of tests, which would be a big start, but like, you know, the, um, the government could actually force companies to produce more masks, more tests, um, you know, deploy the, um, the DPA or, they have these kind of tools, but they refuse to use them. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's incredibly fucked up. Um, so I want to return to Marx for a minute. You know, obviously Marx wrote, uh, was writing a long time ago, you know, it's been a, been a minute. Um, how do you, what, like, you know, if, if he were around today, you know, what, what updates do you think that he would, make based on the way that class society looks right now that he might not have been able to imagine at that time? Mm -hmm. I think probably the most significant thing that Marx definitely did not predict was how um, adaptable the system is. You know, I think in Marx's day, capitalism was still very relatively new. It hadn't, you know, it wasn't even a worldwide system yet. Um, and there were all these like massive movements of like working people. And I think it seemed like revolution was around the corner. Um, and I think to see it around, you know, more than 150 years later, totally entrenched, totally adaptable. Um, I think that would probably be like one of the things that would be really good to have, um, updated theorizing around um, is one thing. And then obviously there's like so many things that couldn't have been predicted. I mean, he did talk about things like financialization, but like the extent of it now um, would be fascinating uh, for Marx to assess and, you know, talk about. There was a lot of really important socialist feminist thought that happened after the days of Marx um, around questions of social reproduction and the role that um, unpaid women's labor plays under capitalism um, that is missing from a lot of Marx's work. So the yeah. first Bernie bro, Carl. Fir- exactly. <laughs> such a Bernie bro. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I think that like, um, one of the big questions is like, you know, how to raise class consciousness in the US. You know, I think that like, I think that one problem is that, you know, somebody who is, for example, working a, I don't know, like a, a, like a white collar middle manager type or whatever, doesn't necessarily see their struggle um, in life as having anything in common with somebody that's working in an Amazon warehouse who maybe like, you know, sees how um, like a labor movement could help them. But I do think that there's like a ton of workers in the United States who, who think that labor movements, you know, would not be relevant to them. Like, I don't know, how, how can we sort of change this thinking or, or start to bring about class consciousness? Like, for people who are maybe not um, 
not struggle, not struggling in, in the way that like people are making minimum wage are, are struggling, but also, you know, not people who own the means of production. Right. Yeah. Well, I think probably the, the number one thing, and it doesn't totally address that, but is like, you know, those people are still really kind of in the minority and I'm not saying they're not important, but I think that overall the way that the labor movement will transform most significantly, in my opinion, is, you know, those people who are, you know, making shit wages and have, you know, awful conditions, whether it's an Amazon warehouse or Starbucks workers that are now unionizing. Um, more, most working class people fit under kind of those kind of conditions. And the main problem in terms of like consciousness is a very real problem, which is like a question of like confidence and where, you know, where, how do people see their power? Like they might see the problem and they, but it's a lot harder to see their power. Um, and we're at a kind of interesting moment right now where there is like, you know, I think the labor shortage thing has been overplayed, but I think, but there is like a tightness in the labor market where it is harder to replace workers right now. And yeah. that gives people more confidence to organize. Um, I mean, the fact that there is like organizing happening at Starbucks right now, I mean, that has just like not been a thing for a very long time. Yeah, it's like, no, it's, ama- it's amazing. I, I've seen people post their tweets about their being, you know, their first day going to work um at starbucks you know being in a union i guess the motivation for the question i just asked you is because like you know insofar as like electoral politics go like if we look at you know the 2020 primary like it it really felt like you know it was uh in some ways you know like uh, uh this the democratic party like the the soul of the democratic party was very much like um you know, a, a battle between people who wanted, you know, more uh, like better conditions for for working class people, like you know, Bernie supporters raising the minimum wage, free childcare, Medicare for all, and then like what has I think really become the Democratic Party's base is like kind of you know, highly educated, um, you know, workers who you know earn. Uh, a lot of money and may also care about stuff like mm-hmm. LGBT rights or or nominally care about stuff like making sure that everyone has access to health care. Like they're not they're not Republicans, you know, but um, certainly don't see themselves as, you know, having uh, anything in common with people who are f- feeling the effects of capitalism more intensely. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think part of it is like, as more and more of this stuff is exposed, like, I think some of those people are kind of being brought along, you know, I'm thinking about even, like, I talked to a couple of the students who organized a walkouts at Brooklyn Tech, um, you know, and Brooklyn Tech is, as far as I understand it, but I don't, you know, I didn't go to high school in New York, um, is like a kind of more not prestigious, it's still like a public school, but like, you know, there's probably a lot of like middle-class kids that go to school there, Um, but they're feeling the effects in a way that they haven't before. And they're feeling it, you know, 
even just as high school students, which is yeah. kind of remarkable that like hundreds of kids would like take it upon themselves to do this. Um, so I think that part of it is like more and more people will kind of be brought along as like the insanity and barbarity of it is more exposed. And then I think the other part of it is like some of them won't and they're not going to necessarily be the leadership of the movement. You know, it's like, yeah. it's, it'll be led from elsewhere and they'll either come along or, you know, or not, <laughs> you know, it's like at a certain point, as like struggles like develop and come more to the surface you sort of have to choose a side and people will will choose you know the right side or the wrong side not to be yeah. too yeah no I, I, I simplistic agree about it but yeah yeah I I mean I think you know it's um I th I think that um a lot of people in the United States, like politically do see the two sides as being like Democrats and Republicans. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think for me, I'm someone that thinks that, you know, electoralism has its place. Like I, I think it would be a lot better if Bernie Sanders were the president right now than Joe Biden. I think that would really be really be super helpful. <laughs> so um, helpful. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think about that and like, you know, cry about that sometimes. Yeah. You imagine somebody who actually cares about people being in charge. Yeah. Um, so um, this has been, a, it's been really great to, to talk to you. There's some other really great stuff in this book. There's a really good explanation of the labor theory of value that will, I think, help people who are reading capital. Um, there's a, yeah, I mean, this is just, it's a, this is a really fun, accessible book. Um, where can listeners get it? Um, probably the best place to go is Amazon. Just kidding. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't splice that part out and you know, add it to every Jeff Bezos. Yeah, I love capital. <laughs> <laughs> Go to Amazon. <laughs> um, you, you can get it directly from the publisher, Haymarket Books, which is a nice way to support independent left publishers. Um, you can, it is carried by a bunch of bookstores and libraries, but, you know, if it, it's not in your local library, call them and request it. And then other people could also read it. Um, yeah, this is, this is really good. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Hadas. Yeah, thank you. It's great talking. Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Reply Guys, where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers, journalists, and comedians with an additional episode uploaded each week. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at O Julia Tweets, O-H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can, of course, also find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me 
that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land. This land is mine. 